Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are continuing our study after our Thanksgiving break of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So if you would be so kind to open to Romans chapter 1, we're going to go ahead and read through those opening verses once more, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We said that Paul was a great letter writer. He wrote many letters, epistles, over the course of his earthly ministry. He wrote letters mostly to churches that he had a personal relationship with. Many of Paul's letters were, for lack of a better description, action grams. They were addressing particular problems or issues in a community. Sometimes they were meant to be an encouragement. In the case of the two letters that were written to the church in Corinth, they were meant to be a corrective. That was also true with the, Paul, the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, which he had established on his first missionary journey. He was trying to correct some of the flawed theology that they had, the works righteousness that had been creeping into that community. Sometimes Paul wrote personal letters, as in the case of his two letters to his young protege, Timothy, who was at that time leading the church in Ephesus. Paul was writing to encourage young Timothy. Sometimes he was writing for other reasons, as in the case of his letter Philemon and Titus. All of those letters, Paul was writing to people, for the most part, with whom he had a relationship. That's a little different when we get to the epistle to the Romans, which is odd considering the fact that this is the most famous of all of Paul's writings. It is his weightiest letter by far, his most theological letter. And yet Paul was, for the most part, writing to a church that he did not have a relationship with. The people that he knew in Rome, he knew primarily by reputation. There may be a few exceptions to this, but for the most part, Paul did not know the people in Rome. He did not establish this church. So we have to ask the question, where did the church in Rome come from? Paul says, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there is a sense that Paul was trying to be particularly diplomatic in the opening to this letter. There is a point, if you read on a little further, where Paul says that he had longed to come and visit these people. Take a look at verse 8 and following. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that I may somehow, by God's will, at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul is saying, I want to come and visit you because I have something that you need. Now that's pretty bold, isn't it? And Paul apparently recognized that he was being somewhat bold because look at verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
That's a little bit of backpedaling there. And you know why? Very simple. In those days, there was no such thing as a rubber eraser. There was no such thing as whiteout in those days. There was no delete button in those days. Parchments were very expensive. Paul recognizes that he's coming on rather strong. These are people he does not have a relationship with. He knows them by reputation. They know him by reputation. He has something that he wants to impart to them that they need. And he realizes, oh boy, I'm coming on a little strong. They might wonder, who does this man think he is? And so he backtracks and he says, or rather, that we might be mutually encouraged. Now this letter begins the typical way that letters in the first century began, for the most part. Letters, when they were written in the first century, or at least the introductions, were very similar to what we might call an inter-office memo, or it's more akin to a, an email. When you and I write letters, handwritten letters, how many of you still do that, by the way, still write handwritten letters? Okay. Well, then you know that you normally write, dear so-and-so, and that person is the recipient. Then you have the body of the letter, and then if you want to know who sent the letter, you've got to turn it over and see at the very bottom or on the back of the page who it was that sent it. That's not the way they wrote letters in the first century. In the first century, you normally stated who the sender was at the very beginning. That's the way we do with emails. Uh, you can see who is sending the email before you even see the body of the letter. Sometimes when you see who is sending the email, you simply hit the delete button and send it to the trash. But in the first century, this is how they wrote letters. You are going to establish your credentials there at the very beginning, and Paul, of course, does that. What does he say? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul establishes his credentials. It's only later on that he goes on to address the recipients, who they are. In this case, the church in Rome. This church that he knew by reputation, that he wanted to give something to that they needed, but a church that he did not have a relationship with personally. In fact, as far as we know, Paul had never visited this church up to this point. He says, I long to come and visit you. But for one reason or another, Paul had been prevented from doing so. So if Paul didn't establish the church in Rome, he certainly established the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, wrote letters to those churches. He established the churches in Galatia and the cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, all of those places. If Paul didn't establish this church in Rome, and it was obviously a going concern by this point, who did? Well, that's one answer that has been given, that Peter was the one who established this church. That is certainly the claim of the Roman Catholic Church, that Peter was the one who established this church, and that's the reason for the primacy of Peter. Well, is that the case? If Paul didn't establish, did Peter actually do it? Well, there is evidence to suggest that Peter did indeed go to Rome, even that he was martyred in Rome. Now, it needs to be said there is no biblical evidence for that at all. The evidence that we have of Peter's connection with the church in Rome and his martyrdom there actually comes from one of the early apostolic fathers who links Peter and Paul together in Rome, being executed at about the same time. But that's the only evidence that we have of a connection, a direct connection with Peter having been there. But it's pretty reliable information when you consider the source as a very early source. But I think the evidence that Peter established the church in Rome is not nearly so strong. Why is that? Well, it's part of what Paul says here in this epistle himself. Take a look at Romans chapter 16. This is the very end of the letter. And again, this is typically the way letters would end. In many ways, this is a theological treatise that is embedded in a letter. But when you get to Romans chapter 16, Paul is wrapping up what he has to say to this church, and he sends greetings. In the same way that you and I, when we write a letter, might say, Remember Aunt Mary. Tell John I said hello. Well, that's what Paul does. He goes on to list a long group of people here. In Romans chapter 16, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria, 
that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Greet my beloved Eponidas. All of these names, aren't they interesting? Eponidas, the first convert to the church in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. He goes on to list all of these people, all of these people who had some sort of connection with the church in Rome that Paul knew. But oddly enough, there is one name that is conspicuously absent who would not have been absent if he was present in Rome and had established the church in Rome, and that, of course, would have been Peter. But Peter is not listed in all of these people that Paul is sending greetings to. Now you say, well, that doesn't mean that Peter hadn't been there on an earlier occasion. This is still very early on. Paul probably wrote this letter sometime between the years 57 and 59 A.D. Many scholars believe in that winter between 58 and 59 A.D. This is not long after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. If Jesus died, let's just say roughly 33 A.D. and was resurrected, well, then we're talking what? 20-some years. It's not a long period of time. It's possible in that 20-year period, Peter did go there to establish the church except for something else that Paul says here in his letter to the Romans. If you go back one chapter earlier to chapter 15, Paul says something that is rather curious. Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. In other words, Paul says, it's never been my ambition, my intention to go out and establish a church or build a church where somebody else has already done the work. And certainly, if Peter was already working there in, in Rome, Paul, as an apostle, would not have gone into his territory. That's what Paul is saying. So I think the evidence suggests to us that Peter probably had some relationship with the church in Rome at the latter part of his career, the latter part of his life, but there's nothing to indicate, either in the secular literature or in the biblical literature, that Peter actually established the church in Rome. So if Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, didn't establish the church in Rome, and Peter, who was the great apostle to the Jewish people, did not establish the church in Rome, who established the church in Rome? Because here we are, 20 years in, and this church is a going concern. It's an important church. Paul speaks of their faith being known throughout the entire world. How old did this church come into existence? Somebody must have taken the gospel to these people. How did that happen? I think that one very real possibility is actually in the book of Acts. If you turn back to the book of Acts, which is the book that immediately precedes Romans, and you go to Acts chapter 2, I think you get a sense of what might have happened and how this church came into being. And it happens in a most organic way. This is the day of Pentecost. Now, this was a great day, obviously, in the life of the church. We recognize it as one of the major feast days in the life of the church. Jesus, of course, had died, he'd been crucified, he'd been resurrected, and over the course of the next 40 days or so, Jesus met with his disciples, instructing them as to what was going to happen. And then we're told he ascended, he returned to the Father. But he told them that they were to go to Jerusalem and they were to wait until the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't know how long they were supposed to wait. As it turns out, they didn't have to wait very long at all. Because on the day of Pentecost, which was a major Jewish feast to begin with, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And we have this account here in Acts chapter 2. The church at this point, following the resurrection of the Lord and up to Pentecost, was relatively small, about 120 people that are mentioned. It's going to grow exponentially on the day of Pentecost from 120 to 3,120 as a result of what happens here. 
But let's just go ahead and read through the opening verses of chapter 2 in this description of what happened on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem to Peter and the others. Paul, of course, was not there at this point, not, hadn't even been converted yet. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when it says other tongues here, it is not talking about some prayer language here. These are known languages. And that becomes apparent in the verses that follow. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it goes on to list the languages and the peoples, the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from where? Rome. Now it says there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. But these people were visitors from Rome. They had come for the festival. They were staying in the city, but they were not residents of Jerusalem. They were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, a great dispersion took place on that day of Pentecost. Presumably, after the Holy Spirit came upon this crowd and all of these people were converted, Peter's going to give this great sermon that follows, and we're told that 3,000 people were added to the fellowship on that day. Presumably, some of those people that were added to the fellowship that day were these visitors from Rome. And when they went back home, what did they take with them? Aside from mementos, trinkets from their journey to Jerusalem, they took back this newfound faith. They took back the message of Jesus Christ. So there's a very real possibility that the church in Rome, which was an important church, a going concern, 20 years into the Christian story, was a church that was established neither by Peter, neither by Paul, really, but by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I think that that is probably the most likely reason for the church's existence there in the capital. Now this was a unique church. It was an important church. And even though Paul had not established it, nevertheless he is writing to it because he recognizes its importance. It's a church that's important for a number of reasons, and Paul delineates some of those things. The most obvious reason why this was an important church is what? Where it was located. You all know that. Location, location, location. You want to buy any real estate, Charleston's a pretty good place to make an investment in real estate right now. Why? Location, location, location. You could spend the same amount of money and buy a much bigger house someplace else. But the problem is you have to live someplace else. Rome was an important city. It was the most important city, really, from a secular point of view, in the ancient world. Jews would have said that Jerusalem was the center of the universe, but most people would have said that the most important city in the ancient world was Rome. Rome was a very important city. Now, let me just say something about Rome, because there is the tendency, I think, to romanticize the ancient world. To look back at the ancient world in the first century in the imperial capital of Rome, sort of with misty eyes, that, that glorious age of classicism with its marble buildings and its grand columns and the imperial palace, and all of that was certainly there. But we have to remember that Rome was also a very corrupt city. It was a pagan city. 
People worshipped all kinds of gods and deities, not unlike what Paul discovered when he went to Athens. Athens was an extraordinary city. Paul visited it, we're told, on his second missionary journey. It was an amazing place. I suspect that when Paul went to Athens, he looked forward to going to that city more than any other city that he'd gone to because it was the center of intellectual ferment in the ancient world. It was where all the great minds gathered. But we're told that when Paul actually got there, he was very discouraged because he saw that the city was filled with idols. They used to say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. They even found a monument there, and Paul references it to the unknown god. They were afraid they missed somebody. The Greeks and the Romans had a god of everything. There was a god of the door hinges. There was a god of the compost pile. And that's no exaggeration. There was a god of everything. So when Paul went to Rome, eventually, that's what he would have found. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, James Mason. You know, the, the actor James Mason, or you, you think about movies like Spartacus, and you think, oh, how could the world have been dark with people like that? You know, with Kirk Douglas and James Mason. Well, it was a very dark world. But the glory of it, the real glory of the church in Rome, was not its location, but that God, in his mercy, had decided to plant a church in that location. I think that's very important for us to keep in mind. And I've talked about this when we studied the book of Acts. As Christians, one of our greatest problems is that we fail to think strategically. You know, Paul didn't fail to think strategically. Paul was a great strategist. He wanted to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the world. He makes that point very clear in his introduction to Romans that this is a gospel not just for a select people, Pentecost makes that clear as well. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not an ethnically restricted kingdom that Jesus is talking about. No, this is a gospel for the whole world. But the question is, how do you get the gospel out to the whole world as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible? And you'll notice that Paul, in the book of Acts at least, begins to develop a strategy. That strategy centers on the great cities of the ancient world. Now, on his first missionary journey, Paul is going to go to minor cities. But as time goes by, he's going to concentrate on the great metropolitan centers of his time, on places like Philippi, Ephesus, Thessaloniki, and Rome. Because if you can establish a Christian presence in those great cities of the world where everything comes and goes, all of the commerce, all of the trade, all of the fashion, you name it, it won't be long before what? The gospel is coming and going as well. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome because it was strategically located. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Listen, that was quite literally true in the first century. The Roman army, wherever it went, was a great road builder. That's what they did. They built Rome's. You know, it's interesting, sometimes it was the case that when people were trying to get through something, they would, they would travel around it, build roads around it. The Romans never built a road around anything. They built a road right through it. They tunneled right through it. They were very effective. If you go to Europe today, even to places like Britain, you can travel on the Roman roads. Some of them are still in operation today. If you go to the Holy Land... You can still see places at Caesarea, for example, Caesarea Maritima by the sea. You can see a great Roman aqueduct, which until about 120 years ago, 150 years ago, was still in operation, some of these things. So all the roads, literally, Rome was like a great hub, and all of the roads went out like the spokes of this wheel into all the world. So that is why Paul is concerned with this church in particular. It's because of its strategic location. Now he says a couple of other things about this church that we need to note today as well. He says to those who are in Rome, this important city, who are, look at how he describes them, loved by God and called to be saints. Loved by God and called to be saints. Now, I think the order here is significant. It wouldn't be significant or it wouldn't stand out to us as being significant if we didn't have the rest of the letter. 
But based upon what Paul goes on to say elsewhere in this letter, the order of those words is very significant. The fact that they were loved by God and then what? Called to be saints. Loved by God. That's the first reason. Why was this church established here? Why were there Christians in Rome in the first place? It's because God has set his love, his affection, on some. Now, if that sounds in any way like something like the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, that's because it is. And we will ultimately get to that because I don't think it's possible for you to read through the epistle to the Romans without dealing with the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And if you're troubled by the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, you're going to be troubled by the entire witness of the Bible because election, predestination, is there at the very beginning. Who's the most important figure in the Old Testament for the Jews? Not Moses. Abraham. Weren't the Jews the children of Abraham? How did Abraham become this important person? Because God set his affection on him. In fact, we're told that God called Abraham when Abraham was living in unbelief. When he was worshiping pagan gods, God broke into Abraham's life. Now, in the Old Testament, who were God's chosen people? The Jews. Notice I said God's chosen people. They didn't say, we'd like to be God's people. God chose them. Why did God choose them? The book of Deuteronomy says not because they were great among the nations of the earth, not because they were powerful, not because they were numerous. God chose them. Why? Because he pleased him to do so. That's what the text says because it pleased him to do so. Now, we're going to unpack this more fully in a couple of years when we get to Romans chapter 9. <laughs> if you're not alive at that point, well, then don't worry about it. God will explain everything to you at that point. But the point is that it is God who does the calling. It is God who does the calling. And notice, they were called to what? Called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the first thing is that God sets his love on them. It is an electing love. And the second thing is that he then calls them. Now, you can see this. If you keep your finger there in Romans, we're going to skip ahead. So I'm giving you just a, just a preview of what you'll get in a couple of years. But turn to Romans chapter 8 for just a second, and you'll get a picture of this. So Romans chapter 8. Now you all know that one of the great passages is this section in Romans chapter 8, often read at funerals. What then shall separate us from the love of God? You know that section of it? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody says hallelujah. But Paul has a very keen mind, a very logical mind. And while that is the climax of his argument in Romans chapter 8, there is much more that goes before it that makes it even more marvelous and fantastic. So let's go back just a few verses. Romans chapter 8 basically says three things. First of all, it says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's how the chapter begins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no defeat, 
and no separation from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Romans 8 is such a marvelous chapter. No condemnation, no defeat, and no separation. Hallelujah. But why is that? That's the question. Why is there no condemnation? Why is there no separation? And why is there no defeat for those who are in Christ Jesus? It's because of what Paul says in verse 28. Now, you all know this verse, 828. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there it is, according to His purpose. And then Paul gives us what theologians commonly refer to as the order salutis, the order of salvation. So look at the order of things. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Now, there are a number of words there that are worthy of note. If you've got a pencil or a pen, go ahead and write these or underline these words or highlight these words. The first is foreknew. The next word is predestined. The next word is conformed. All right? The next word then is called. The next word is justified. The next word is glorified. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and those he predestined he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. Who does all the work there? Who's doing the foreknowledge, the foreknowing? Who's doing the predestining? Who does the conforming? Who does the calling? Who does the justifying? Who does the glorifying? God does it all. From stem to stern, from start to finish, from first to last. What do you and I contribute to this whole process? Nothing. Nothing. And the order is very important. And that's what Paul fleshes out. That's why he can say, what then can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Why? Because this work of salvation is the work of God. And God always finishes what God starts. Now, the one word that can throw people off is that word foreknew. Because for some, that implies that God saw beforehand that we would choose Him, and on the basis of His foreknowledge that we would choose Him, He chose us. The only problem with that is that is not what the Greek word means. This is the English translation. You've heard the expression, something gets lost in translation. That's true. You know that when you translate words into English from Greek, sometimes things get lost. Greek is a very rich language. The word that is translated here as foreknew literally means, a better translation would be took note of. Those whom he took note of, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he will glorify. That's why Paul can then go on to say, so what then shall separate us from the love of God? And that's why he can say nothing, neither height nor depth, angels nor principality, things present nor things to come. Nothing else in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Not even you yourself can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Why? Because this is the work of God. Now, Paul gives us just a taste of that at the beginning of the letter. You don't get him unpacking that until you get to Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. So if you're wondering, am I elect? You'll have to wait 
until we get to those chapters to find out. Not true, not true. So Paul is stating right here at the beginning that these people in Rome were called by God. It's not by chance, it's not serendipitous, it's not by accident that there is a community of faith in Rome. It is there, there may be a number of circumstances leading up to it, but all of those circumstances were governed in the sovereignty of God. So there is a church here in Rome. He says that they are loved by the Father. But he says that they are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We've said all along that every phrase, every word that Paul uses is carefully chosen and pregnant with meaning. Called, but called for a specific purpose, to belong to Jesus Christ. This is a reference to what theologians sometimes refer to as the doctrine of union with Christ. Now that is not a phrase you hear often from the pulpit, but I want to say to you that this is perhaps the most important in terms of your salvation and mine, of all the Christian doctrines. In fact, this is the essence of salvation. When I say that word, salvation, what springs to your mind? For many people, what springs to their mind, I think, is this idea of going to heaven when they die. I want to be saved. And, and to be saved means that when I die, I get to get out of here and go to heaven, which is much better by far. Well, that may be true, but the New Testament would never say that that's the essence of salvation. The essence of salvation is not just escaping the late great planet Earth and getting to go to another place. The essence of salvation is to be united with Christ. And it's because we are united with Christ that heaven is our ultimate hope. But it's only because we are united with Christ Christ. Our fate is wrapped up in His fate. And we're going to unpack this here a little bit more in just, in just a moment. So we have this church is unique because of where it's located. It's because these people have been called by God to belong to Jesus Christ, to be united to Him. Because they've been called by Him and united to Him, they are loved by him. And Paul spells this out in other places. You can see it in Ephesians 2. You can see it certainly in the Old Testament, we said with Deuteronomy and the Jews. And they are called to be saints. They're called out of something, into something, and for something. Out of darkness into light, out of their paganism, their unbelief into belief, into a relationship with Christ and for the purpose of being saints. Now, what does that word saint mean? That's what it means. The word means, somebody's already been primed and ready to go, Martha's right. The word means to be set apart. A saint, and if you were here on All Saints Sunday when the last I preached on this, you'll recall that I said a saint is not somebody who does great things, accomplishes extraordinary feats, and as a consequence gets awarded this special status of saint. There's, there's no process of canonization in the kingdom of God. There may be in certain denominations, but there is not in the kingdom of God. The New Testament word saint can also be translated as Christian. A Christian is a saint, and a saint is a Christian. Those two terms are used interchangeably. There's no hierarchy. So if you're a Christian today, you belong to Jesus Christ, you are loved by Jesus Christ, you are a saint. A saint is somebody who's been set apart. It's the word from which we get our term sanctify, sanctus. What does that word sanctus mean? Holy. To sanctify something means to you set it apart. When the priest at the altar, at the table, sanctifies the bread and the wine, what is he doing? Setting it apart. When the bishop comes and dedicates a church, and sanctifies it. What is he doing? He's taking a building and he is setting it apart for a special purpose. When a church is no longer being used as a church, we actually have a liturgy to deconsecrate the church. 
so that it can now be used for secular purposes because it had been sanctified, set apart for a special purpose. So this church in Rome was a church was established by God because God in His electing grace called them to belong to Him. He set His affection upon them and He set them apart for a special purpose in the world. And that's what you and I are called to be, to be set apart for this purpose. Now, I want to come back to this whole idea of union with Christ because it is so important. We need to understand that this is the essence of salvation. This is really what it means to have the joy and the hope of salvation, is to be united with Christ. But before we do that, let me just pause and ask if you have any questions about what I've said so far, because I realize I've probably blown some of your minds, this whole talk about the electing love of God. Yes, Elizabeth. Yes. Right. Well, sure, it's a great question. The question is, um, there are many people in specific religions or denominations, I think, who talk a great deal about predestination. Um, I think most people, when they think of predestination, assume that that's something that Presbyterians believe in. And, and sometimes it almost borders on the fatalistic. But are Presbyterians the only ones that believe in predestination? I want to read you from the book, all right? I'm going to read you something out of the book. Now, when I say the book, what am I talking about here? No, I'm not. I'm talking about the Book of Common Prayer. Because, after all, you're, you know, Anglicans. I mean, why not? So, it's on page 871. Mark it down in your notes page 871 in the Book of Common Prayer. And I want to read you from the 39 Articles of Religion, which incidentally, now that we are part of the Anglican Church of North America, these are now required for subscription by all clergy. So we have to sign off on these in order to be ordained in the Anglican Church of North America. They were originally published in 1549, which was the first Book of Common Prayer. Those of you who've been in the study on Anglicanism in the Rector's Forum. First Book of Common Prayer came out in 1549, authored primarily by whom? Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, what greater pedigree can you possibly have? It was there in the very first Book of Common Prayer. It's come down to us in every successive Book of Common Prayer. And here's what it says on page 871, article number 17 of the 39 articles. And, by the way, the longest of the articles. Now, let me just ask one other question before I read it. Is the Book of Common Prayer a Presbyterian document? Okay, this is an Anglican document. Can we at least agree with that? This is even an Episcopalian document. If only they'd read it. But at any rate, edit that out of the notes. Uh, okay, here we go. Article number 17, entitled, A Predestination and Election which reads, I was having a conversation with a clergyman about this recently, and he said, you know, I need to go back and read that. Well, he won't have to because I'm going to read it right now. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, God hath constantly decreed by His counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ 
to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to God's purpose, there's the phrase, called according to God's purpose, by His Spirit working in due season. They, through grace, obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like at the image of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. Now, if you listen to those words carefully, what you'll notice is that it is a direct echo of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8. That those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified, which is meant they attain to everlasting felicity. But that's not it. The article goes on to say, As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and as such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, what basically Cranmer is saying there is this is a doctrine that really should fill Christians with a great sense of hope and encouragement. Because what it means is that God is at work in your life. And if God is at work in your life, there is nothing, again, that can separate you from His love. Because it is God's work. If salvation was up to you, guaranteed, you're going to blow it. But if it's God's work, God always finishes what he starts. That's what Cranmer is saying. So he goes on to say, it's a message of pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. He says, but for curious and carnal persons, lacking the spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into despair or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive God's promise in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture, and in our doings that will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in the Word of God. So when we ask the question, who believes in predestination? Well, we're supposed to, because it's right there. Now, I know that this raises all kinds of questions, and as time goes by, I hope to answer some of them. But I don't want to jump ahead, because Paul, as I said, really unpacks this. He gives us a very powerful, logical, he's got the mind of a lawyer. He's a Pharisee, after all. And he really unpacks all of this. But let me just give you a couple of reasons why I think the doctrine of predestination should not be so troubling to you, but should be encouraging to you. The first reason is this, if you're a Christian today and you are in union with Christ, Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, what that meant is that God did not leave your salvation up to chance. Here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. He said, I know that God chose me. Somebody said, why? He said, because I would never have chosen him. <laughs> Isn't that true? If God had not been at work in your life, would you have ever chosen Him? Chances are no. When you're lost in sin, what does that sin do to you? The only thing it does is it succeeds in hardening your heart. And here's another reason why predestination is important. If you have children that are unbelievers. You know, it's always interesting to me that when I meet parents whose children are not walking with the Lord, and, and, you know, that can be any number of reasons. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily lost. God can bring anybody at the last moment. But what is interesting to me is that people want free will for themselves. I, I, I don't want God messing with me. I'll choose Him. But when it comes to my children, I don't care what God has to do. He can break into their life. Whatever it takes, I want God to make sure that they know Him. 
too. We want predestination for everybody else except for ourselves. But that should be a great message of encouragement to you if you're Christian and your children are not walking with the Lord. If it is God's sovereign will, they are going to come to Him no matter how hard they kick against the goads. God will break in on their lives. And He will bring them to Himself. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? Paul was, of course, making his way to Damascus, 110 miles away from Jerusalem, to arrest Christians, to persecute them, to bring them back for trial and execution, men, women, and children. You know the story, the Lord Jesus Christ broke in on his life. How many of you have ever heard the expression, oh, God is a perfect gentleman. He'll never break in on your life unless you invite him. Tell that to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. God broke into his life, stopped Paul in his tracks. And you know the story, he was struck blind on that occasion. And I think that physical blindness was meant to reflect the inward spiritual blindness that Paul had experienced. It's what Newton talks about in that great hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That was Paul. He had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus to the home of a man by the name of Judas on Straight Street. That's what I love. The Bible actually gives us the address. <laughs> Judas on Straight Street, and this man by the name of Ananias is called by God to go and lay hands on Paul that Paul might receive his sight. So just imagine the scene. God calls on Ananias, maybe in a dream, who knows, maybe in his prayer closet, whatever it is, and he says, look, I've got a job for you, Ananias. I want you to go to Damascus, to the home of Judas. He lives on State Street, Straight Street, uh, number 22, Straight Street. Go ahead there. And there's this man who's been struck blind, and I want you to lay your hands on him that he might receive his sight. Ananias says, got it, Lord. And uh, what's his name? Sort of like Bill going to visit the hospital. Got it. What's, what's the name? And he says, the name is... Saul of Tarsus. Can I have that again? Saul of Tarsus. What? And Ananias says, Lord, I know this man. I know of him by reputation. This is what the text says. And he persecutes people like me. In fact, he's come here, deputized by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest to arrest people like me and take me back for trial and execution. And this is what the Lord says. You go. He is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now there is a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. Paul was writing about this because Paul knew this was his own experience. He would never have chosen God. He was working against God, fighting against God, kicking against the goats. But God chose him. And if God can choose that kind of a man, God can save anybody. So never despair. Never despair. But nevertheless, that's what Paul is talking about here in those opening verses. So, uh, the bottom line is, we'll unpack this more because Paul really does do that in Romans 9 through 11. He really deals with it. In fact, he deals with all the objections. For example, somebody will say, well, if it's all a matter of God choosing, then how can God find fault? That's a great question, isn't it? Paul, being the lawyer, anticipates. I've known a few lawyers over my career as a minister, especially in more recent years, and um, one of the things I've learned about lawyers is they never ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. Paul asks the question, how can God find fault? He already has the answer for it. But you've got to wait till Romans chapter 9 to get it. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. So let's go back to this whole idea of union. Well, we only have about five minutes left. Let's just time out there because I want to go back to this idea of union with Christ, but it's a big theme and it's an important theme. Any other questions about this introduction to Romans? Yes. It's my mother, so this could be dangerous. <laughs> What's the difference between predestination and 
Okay, so the question is, and it's what is the difference between predestination and a person's freedom of choice? This gets technical at this point because there is a difference between free choice and free will. All right, there's a difference between free choice and free will. Martin Luther would say that we have free choice, but we do not have free will. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Your will is that which governs your desires, your needs, your wants. If your will is bound, John Charles Wesley talked about this in his hymn, And Can It Be. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Now, when it comes to making our individual decisions, we make our decisions freely. Nobody's pushing us in one direction or another. Nobody's forcing us to do anything. The point is that your desires will always follow your heart. And if your heart is corrupt, then every decision that you make is going to be what? Corrupt. This is why it was Cranmer and others who've said it. Some say it was Augustine, some say it was Cranmer. But whatever the will chooses, whatever the heart chooses, how's it go? Yes, I know what it is. What is it again? Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. There you go. Whatever the heart desires, the will will choose, and the mind will justify. Now you think about that for a minute. If your heart desires to have a relationship with a married person, <laughs> I'm just saying if your heart desires it, really desires it, your will will choose it. And your mind will justify it. Well, don't I have a right to be happy? This is one of the reasons why we have to recognize the corruption of the human heart. That is why we need a Savior. It is because the heart is corrupt above all things. See, we really don't think we're as bad as the Scripture says we are. But in many respects, we're worse. That's right. The desires of our hearts, Jesus says it's out of the heart that become all of these evil thoughts. Envy, murder, strife, adultery, you name it. So if we're going to be saved, what do we need? A heart transplant. I'll put it to you this way. Think of a lion. Now you can preach to a lion about lying down with the lamb. And you can preach to him and tell him he should lie down with the lamb. He should get along with the lamb. Everybody should be nice to the lamb. But if a lamb wanders into the lion's den, what's for supper? Muttons for supper, that's what you're going to get. And that is because, and, and, or put it this way, you have the lion in there and you put in all of this straw. Now, a cow will eat straw, a horse will eat straw, but a lion will not eat straw. And it doesn't matter how much straw you put in there, he is not going to eat straw. It is in his nature to only eat what? Meat. And that's why if the lamb goes in there, it doesn't matter if he has everything else, his nature is to eat the meat. The scripture says our nature is to follow fleshly desires. Jesus, we're told, would entrust himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of man. This is why Augustine prayed, Batter my heart, three-person God, thy power to break, burn, blow, and make me new. This is why the Old Testament says, Take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Because we are by nature corrupt. Our heart desires the things of the world. And what God has to do is come and take away our hearts of stone, give us a new heart, a new heart that has a love for God and a love for the things of heaven. And then you will begin to choose the things that your heart now desires. So you may have free choice, you're choosing all sorts of things, but your choices are going to be made on the basis of your heart. And unless you have a new heart, you cannot choose the things of God. And that's why salvation 
has to be the work of God from start to finish because of the nature of our hearts. Martha. It's a great question. Let me read from the book. And, and the question is, you know, one of the biggest problems is how can we say that every decision, and the prayer book says that, every decision that is made before a new heart is evil. It's not exactly that it's evil. It's that it's not pleasing to God. And there's a difference between the two. It's not that it's evil, it's just the decisions we make before regeneration, before a new heart, before we're born again, are decisions that are not necessarily pleasing to God. That doesn't mean they're not pleasing to the culture, or pleasing to your neighbor, or pleasing to society. It just means that they're not pleasing to God. And this is one of the reasons why it talks about good works in the Articles of Religion. This is article number 12 of good works. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, that's key. Our good works do not save us, but they do result from our faith. But the very next article is this, of works before justification. That is, of good works before God gives us a new heart. How does God regard those works? We know how the world regards them. The world might say, you sent up this, this, this great agency, this wonderful agency that, that feeds the poor and clothes the hungry and all, you know, all of that sort of thing. That's marvelous. That's fantastic. But how does, that's, the society, of course, looks upon that as a benevolent act. But how does God look upon it? Well, this is what the articles say. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Spirit are not pleasant to God for as much as they spring not of faith in Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace. That's article number 13 on page 870. In other words, those are good works that are pleasing to man. They're not necessarily pleasing to God. Why? Because number one, they can't earn you favor with God. And God is not simply interested in what you do, God is interested in why you do it. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So let me ask you this question. Men, if you go and you buy your wife a Valentine's Day card, only because you do not want to hear what's going to happen if you don't, is that really pleasing to your wife? Or is it pleasing to her that you gave her the card because you actually love her? God is not simply interested in what we do. God wants to know why we are doing it. This is why the apostle can describe Christian ministry, Christian service as a service of perfect freedom. It's because he's doing it not because he has to. He's not under obligation. It's not drudgery. He does it because he loves to do it. It's sort of like me. I love what I do. Somebody asked me, when do you plan to retire? I said, well, not anytime soon, I hope. And I said, maybe never. I just don't want to be past my prime. But, but the reality is, it's almost a sin to get paid to do what I do. Almost. I just want you to know, almost. But you see, if you love it, even if it's hard, even if you're exhausted, it's not a burden. It's not a burden. 
And so good works that are done before that new heart, they may be pleasing to men, but they're not pleasing to God. God wants you to serve Him not out of fear, but out of love. And that requires a new heart. And when you get the new heart, whatever that new heart desires, it will choose. And the mind will have no need to justify because God has done all the justifying. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these opening verses of Romans. It should come as no surprise to us that very early on in this greatest of all Paul's epistles that he should hit us with some very big doctrines. Lord, we pray that we would come humbly. When it comes to the Scripture, Lord, sometimes the best thing we can do is swallow it whole like swallowing an aspirin. We don't chew an aspirin. It will make us feel worse. It's a bitter taste, and there are parts of the Scripture that we cannot understand. That should not be a surprise to us, Lord. You are so great, so lofty, so transcendent, so holy. We are but dust. Why should we think that we can understand everything? But you've given us enough to trust you, even in the things we do not understand. So grant us the grace to swallow your word whole, trusting that it will work its miraculous, saving purposes in our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you very much.